Welcome to the Heights Sermon Series Podcast, where each week you'll hear a new message that'll help you live your life shaped by the way. You know, I've, uh, I have found it interesting, amazing, I'm not, not sure what the right word is, how many sermons during the Genesis series I have used the word grace, or I've ended up saying, man, it's just all, it's all about God's grace. And It's not that I am or you are surprised by that, but I think sometimes, don't we, I mean, it's a faulty thinking, but sometimes we have this idea that, you know, in the Old Testament, God's kind of angry, right? The Old Testament God, he's about rules and judgment, he's kind of angry, but in the New Testament, he becomes nice. You know, he's loving and he's forgiving, and we have this dichotomy of two different gods, which is entirely inappropriate and wrong. I mean, hey, you can look to the New Testament, and you can see plenty of rules, and you can see plenty of fire and judgment. And you can look all through the New Old Testament, and you see God's grace, his favor, his kindness, his love, over and over and over. And that shouldn't be a surprise to us, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always acting in perfect uh, uh, sinking with his, his character qualities. But it has been interesting to see how much he displays his grace in Genesis. And think about what Genesis is. It's the foundation. It's the book that, that is setting the pace for the rest of the Bible and, and, and the rest of God's revelation. And we see grace. We've seen it in Abraham. We've seen it in Isaac. Think about when God goes to Abraham with all those promises and blessings. Remember, Abraham's an idol worshiper. God's not revealing himself to Abraham because of what a good person he was or how faithfully he was living the faith. He was following another God. You see, that, that, that's God's grace. Over and over what we see through this story is it's his goodness, not ours. It's his grace, not our deservedness. He's faithful even when we are not. And boy, we are, we are going to really see that today. As we come to Genesis 29 and 30, which is where our our study is taking us. And uh, with all that goodness of God, I I don't know why when I read all that, again, I think a question that come up that we don't appropriately ask or, or with the right motivation, but I think it can be asked. Does it matter how I live? I mean, if it's all God's grace, not my deservedness, you know, if, if God's going to do what God's going to do, then, then does it really matter how I live? Well, we're going we're gonna to see if Genesis 29 to 30 can, can help us with that. Now, let's think a little bit real quickly about where we've been. Chapters 1 through 11 is the foundation of everything. Where, where everything came from and why it is the way it is. So that, that it's dealing with a lot of things, but yet really some key big things in chapters 1 through 11. Then chapters 12 through 50 are the foundation, not of everything. That was Genesis 1 through 11. No, it's the foundation of the Jewish faith. Where did it come from and why are things the way They are. And when you break 12 through 50 down, 12 through 25 is the focus is on Abraham and Sarah. And we've spent a lot of weeks looking at Abraham and Sarah. And last week we we changed our focus, didn't we? Chapter 26, it moves from Abraham and Sarah to Isaac and Rebekah. Now, we just spent 13 chapters 
with Abraham and Sarah. We're not going to spend 13 chapters with Isaac and Rebekah. You know, their story keeps woven throughout the, the rest of where we're going. But the, it shifts very quickly to the story about Jacob and Esau. Isaac and Rebekah's twin sons. Esau was born first. He came out first. As he was coming out, y'all know that story? As he's coming out, here comes, here comes Jacob's hand. He's got a hold of his brother's foot. Maybe that's why they named him Jacob. It literally means heel catcher, but it also means a deceiver. Who knows if his name maybe kind of casts the die for his life. Because that's really, as it, as it switches to a story about Jacob and Esau, it's really a story of their conflict, a story of the tension between the two of them. Esau, and this is as they're becoming uh, uh, adult kids, adult children uh, of Isaac and Rebekah's, uh, Jacob deceives his brother out of his birthright. Now, we don't think a lot about birthrights, may not even know what that means, but they knew what it meant. And it was a big deal to them. And so that's the first time, or at least that we're told in the story, that Esau's burned by his twin brother. But then when Isaac goes to give the blessing that goes with the birthright, well, then Isaac jumps, or Jacob jumps in front of him and gets that blessing. And you know, well, why did Isaac give it to him? Well, Isaac was going blind. Isaac couldn't see, and Jacob literally tricked him into thinking that he was Esau. Now, Isaac wasn't happy about that when he realized what had happened, but he still his boy. He still loved him, and he didn't want him dead. You say, dead? Why, why is that on the table? Because Esau's done with his brother. Twice burned now, he's, he's ready to kill his brother. And you know, as much as things uh, change, they're, they're the same. What do you do when you have a problem in the family? You ship them off to another family member. And Isaac and Rebekah get together and say, hey, this isn't going to work good anymore. We got to get Jacob out of here. And they send him to Rebekah's brother, Uncle Laban, where Jacob is going to meet his match. But on the way to Uncle Laban's house, right around the end of of, uh, chapter 28, we're going to see God show up in Jacob's life. And we're going to see God introduce himself, deliver to him the same promises and blessings that we saw God give to Abraham in Genesis 12, that we saw last week God give to Isaac in Genesis 26. Now he's giving that to Jacob. And, and folks, you won't see the word grace in that chapter, but it is entirely a story of grace. Why? Because the last few chapters about Jacob have been anything but flattering, anything but developing. Hey, I, I just kind of want to develop the story of Jacob so you can see how much he deserves for God to show up. But no, it's quite the opposite of that. And that's what brings us then to chapters 29 to 30, where we are going to see, boy, the, the, a mess of humanity, a, a, a mess of a family. If you think you have the worst family in the world, I've got good news for you today. You're dropping into second. You're, you're about to meet maybe the worst family in the world. Let's look, Genesis chapter 29 and 30. Now, these are two long chapters. It, it, would, it would take me 15 minutes just to read these two chapters. So I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read a lot of it. I want us to get a feel for for what is happening here. So I'm going to begin in about verse 14, about halfway through verse 14 of chapter 29. 
It says, after Jacob had stayed with Laban for about a month, Laban said to him, hey, you shouldn't work for me without pay just because we're relatives. Relatives, how much would, Tell me how much you want your wages to be. Well, that's a nice uncle, isn't it? That'll be the last time you think that. Now, Laban had two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah, and the younger one was Rachel. There was no sparkle in Leah's eyes. That's what my translation says, no sparkle in her eyes. You may have a translation that says dull. Her eyes were dull. You may have a translation. Now, here's a tricky one. You may have a translation that says beautiful. Now, I can hear how dull and no sparkle are kind of the same, but beautiful would be quite the opposite. What, what's the word that goes there? You know, I'm, I'm pausing on this. It's an interesting thing to study. This is one of very, very, very few. We're not talking dozens. We're talking several. We're talking about one of very few words in the Bible. We don't know how to interpret it. We, we don't know what it means. And part of the reason is it's a very rare word. It's only used here in the entire Bible, and it's used in very few places in other uh, Hebrew writings. And so you, when, when you're trying to interpret a word, you look at how it's used in all kinds of places, and you come up with a meaning. Well, we can't find it anywhere. So it's just a tricky word to understand. Whatever it's trying to say, I don't think it's flattering. Because the next word is but. Okay, here's what Leah looks like, (laughs) but in contrast to that, Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. So I'm taking it that Leah doesn't, okay? Since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he told her father, I will work for you seven years if you give me Rachel, your younger daughter, as my wife. Agreed, Laban replied. I'd rather give her to you than anyone else. Stay and work with me. So Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel, but his love for her was so strong, it just seemed like a few days. That's that's romantic, isn't it? And that will be the last time you think of Jacob as romantic. Finally, the time came for him to marry her. I have fulfilled my agreement, uh, Jacob said to Laban. Now give me my wife so I can sleep with her. That sounds kind of crass. It reads rougher than it sounds. Basically what it's saying is I'm ready to conceive. I'm ready to make official this marriage, official this love that that I have for her. Verse 22. So Laban invited everyone in the neighborhood and prepared a wedding feast. But that night when it was dark... Laban took Leah to Jacob, and he slept with her. Now, I don't know what kind of dark they had back then. (laughs) I would like to think I can tell who I'm sleeping with. Um, But now you stop and think about it. You know, actually, I don't think there's a lot of places where you and I experience the kind of dark they had back then. We've always got the light of of a clock, uh, of, of a nightlight, uh, of, the, of the street lights outside. It's, you kind of have to work at it to get to a place where when it's dark, it's pitch black. You can't even tell who's in front of you. I, I guess that is what we're looking at here. Um, hey, wait a minute. How did Jacob trick his father? He took advantage of the fact he couldn't see. What just happened right here? Jacob got taken advantage of because he couldn't. That's interesting. We'll hold on to that. We'll come back in a little bit. 
Okay, so, but, but guess what? The sun comes up. <laughs> Laban took Leah to Jacob, and he slept with her. Laban had given Leah a servant, Zilpah, to be her maid. But when Jacob woke up in the morning, it was Leah. What have you done to me? Now, fortunately, he says that to, to Laban, not, not Leah. But I'm guessing she's pretty much tuned in to what's going on. Jacob raged at Laban. I worked seven years for Rachel. Why have you tricked me? It's not our custom here to marry off a younger daughter ahead of the firstborn, Laban replied. Hey, do y'all get that? What did, what did Jacob do to Esau? He jumped in front of him as the firstborn. You know, this is family right here. Now, you know, uh, Jacob and, and Rebecca, or, or Isaac and Rebecca live a long way away, but Rebecca and Laban, they communicate. Laban knows what went on back at home. And I tell you what, it sounds a little bit like a jab to me. Hey, you may have been able to jump in line at home, but you ain't jumping in line here. Now, here's my crazy thought. Was Laban making that jab or God making that jab? That's, that's tricky. Okay, we'll come back. So now here at Laban, remember, nice old Uncle Laban, wait until the bridal week is over. Go, go on your honeymoon, and when you get back, then we'll give you Rachel too. Boy, happy Father's Day to him. Provided you promise to work for me another seven years. So he just secured 14 years of Jacob's life. So Jacob agreed to work seven more years. A week after Jacob had married Leah, Laban gave him Rachel too. Laban gave Rachel a servant, Bilhah, to be her maid. So Jacob slept with Rachel too, and he loved her much more than Leah. Well, that stings a little bit, doesn't it? So we go into this home. They just moved into their new house. One side's for Rachel, one side's for uh, Leah. And Jacob gets to run back and forth. Oh, it's going to be like the Brady Bunch, isn't it? I want, I'm going to read, and I want you to listen for words that describe what somebody is feeling. I want you to listen for words that describe the environment in this home. Beginning in verse 21, 31. When the Lord saw that we, Leah was unloved. Well, we didn't have to get very far, did we? Somebody in this home is feeling unloved. He enabled her to have children, but Rachel could not conceive. So Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, the Lord has noticed my misery. Okay, there's a second word, unloved and miserable. And now my husband will love me. You know what that phrase says? It means she's working for his love. She's trying to earn a relationship with him. Boy, that's a wonderful place to be, isn't it? When you're trying to earn somebody's love. Verse 33, soon she became pregnant again and gave birth to another son. She named him Simeon, for she said, the Lord heard that I was unloved, still feeling that way, and has given me another son. Then she became pregnant a third time and gave birth to another son. He was named Levi, for she said, surely this time my husband will feel affection for me. This is the third son. Takes just as long to make babies back then as it does now, nine months. And, you know, you have to figure a month or two in between, maybe a little more. She's well into three years in this marriage, feeling unloved, miserable, no affection. Clearly, there's sex because they're making babies, right? Boy, sex without affection. That's a hard place to be. 
chapter or verse 35, there's going to be a, a fourth child that, that Leah gives uh, named Judah. Now chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she wasn't having any children for Jacob, she became jealous. That's another word described. Now remember, Rachel's the favored one. But look what her experience is now in this home. Jealousy. She became jealous of her sister. She pleaded with Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob became furious with Rachel. Am I God, he asked? He's the one who's kept you from having children. Now, just to be clear, that's not a theological statement. That's not a point that the Bible is trying to make. That is a husband lashing out at his wife. That is a husband and a wife blaming each other for what they feel, blaming each other for the problem. Then Rachel told him, take my maid Bilhah. I won't take time here, but we've already studied this in Genesis, how this is, if you can't have children, you're you're not going to the doctor and looking at technology. You're going to figure out how to provide a child another way. And this is kind of the the first example of surrogacy. Take my, my, my maid Bilhah and sleep with her. She will bear children for me, and through her I can have a family too. So Rachel gave her servant Bilhah to Jacob as a wife, and he slept with her. Bilhah became pregnant and presented him with a son. Rachel named him Dan, for she said, God has vindicated me. You know what vindicated me is? God's helped me get even. And again, what a wonderful place to be in your house where you feel like you have to get even. She has another child through, through Bilhah. She'll name that one, verse 8, Naphtali. Listen to this. I have struggled hard with my sister, and I'm winning. Let me tell you something. If, if you're in a home where there's winners and losers, even if you're the winner, you're losing. If you always win the argument, you're losing. It is an awful, horrible place to be in a home where we're all supposed to be on the same team. We all win together, we all lose together, but yet we've divided up our home so there's winners and losers there. Hey, if you're a part of creating a winner and a winning and a losing environment, go home and fall on your knees and ask God to help you change that. I didn't ask who was right and wrong. I said, go home and ask God to change that. Meanwhile, Leah realized, hey, I'm not having kids anymore. And so she introduces her maid into the situation. And there's going to be a a couple more sons delivered that way. Then we get to verse 14, as if it couldn't get any worse. Leah is basically going to buy a night from Rachel with Jacob. Now, at this point, I'm wondering, why does anybody want to spend the night with Jacob? But, but Leah buys a night. Can you How do you understand this in our world? She buys a night with Jacob uh, that is going to produce some more, some more sons. Jump down to verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel's plight and answered her prayers by enabling her to have children. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. God has removed my disgrace. I mean, folks, we're, we're 10, 15 plus years into this marriage. And and what is she feeling? I feel disgrace in this home. I'm going to stop on the children and and the making babies right there. And if you look at verse 25, verse 25 all the way to the end of the chapter, there's going to be a shift. Okay, we've been, we've just been reading a lot. It's Jacob and, and all the ladies in his house. And now it's going to shift back to Jacob and Laban. (laughs) 
And we're going to see Lab- uh, Jacob actually start to get the better of Laban. And now instead of wheeling and dealing over wives, they're going to start wheeling and dealing over business. Laban has gotten very wealthy with the 14 years of labor that Jacob has put in. He's pretty smart. He really makes things profit and do well. And so they start wheeling and dealing over that. Not in 29 to 30, but a little later, Jacob is going to say, you know, 10 times you changed my my wages. Ten times you tried to trick me and, and take back what was mine. But like I said, Jacob got the better of them. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 30, you'll see there in verse 43, Jacob is wealthy, wealthy, wealthy man. So massive family, really wealthy. He's got four, two wives and maids, four wives. You break that out how you want. He's got 12 sons. Actually, if you read 29 and 30 and count them up, it's 11 sons. A 12th son will be coming in a, in a future chapter, again with Rachel, and that'll be Benjamin. That'll round out the 12 sons. There are daughters that are mentioned there. So this, this is a big family. And what is interesting about this is here you've got these 12 sons and Jacob. Now, if, if you come back next week, we're going to see Jacob's name changed. Okay, remember we saw Abram become Abraham? Now that sounds kind of close, but Jacob is going to become Israel. And that's going to be an interesting story in how that happens. So this is Israel. The 12 sons are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, folks, this is really the foundation now, the groundwork of what is going to become the Jewish nation. This, this is what God is using that this family, these 12 sons. As a matter of fact, when we get to, to Jerusalem, the grand city of Jerusalem and the wall that goes around Jerusalem, there's 12 gates. And over each one of these gates is going to be one of the names of these 12 sons. Oh, you know what? I left out an important word there. New Jerusalem. When we get to heaven... And see the new Jerusalem and that great wall that goes around it. These 12 yo-yo's names go above that, that gate. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I can't think of how, Lord, would you use this? I, I mean, these guys' names give... Well, you say, well, they haven't done anything. They're just kids being born into a mess. Hey, we're going to get a little further here in Genesis and find out. They, they pick up the family DNA. Uh, I mean, they're going to be just as bad as, as mom and dad and, and Jacob and his deceit and favoritism. And you look at that and think, wait a minute, you took these 12 names and immortalized it on these 12 gates? God, I mean, what, was this your design, God? Was this your plan all along to use that? Because he did. And that's where I get the question Does it even matter how we live? I mean, God's going to do what God's going to do, whether it's his power and his control or whether it's his grace and his love. It seems like it all works out. Hey, and that's good news, isn't it? Hey, it all works out in the end. So what difference does it make how I live? Well, we're going we're gonna to see if we can unwrap that a little bit. Now, the, the first thing to understand here is God's goal is not to build the biggest dysfunctional family he can. Okay, he's not a a, a part of all that. 
And there's something really important to understand here. It's true 4,000 years ago, but man, is it important to hear this today. Because you see, God can love and forgive without approving of behavior. See, you think about it, in our culture today, if I say I love you or even I'm a, I'm a friend of yours, then that means I not only approve of, I applaud all of your thoughts and behavior. And if I in any way, shape, or form have any question about your thoughts and behavior, then I'm not a real friend. I'm not really loving. Now, that may be the way we think today, but it is not the way God thinks. God can absolutely love you, absolutely forgive you, and say, hey, you know what? The way you're living is not okay. I, I am not okay with that, with, with that behavior in your life. You know, folks, here, here's the bottom line. While God will love and forgive, his goal is to grow you and I. His goal is to grow Jacob into Christ-likeness. Yes, all the way back there in Genesis, God's goal was that when he's done with Jacob and Jacob steps into heaven, he looks just like Jesus. And our obedience, our disobedience, that's going to have a profound impact on how much I enjoy being made into the image of Christ. Okay, I can make that more difficult or I can make that less difficult. I, I actually believe in this story. To me, it's just too much of a coincidence that what Jacob did to Esau and his dad in those two stories shows up exactly in what happens to him. And that's where I wonder, now wait a minute. Okay, so did, did God send Laban to do that? Did God actually whisper in his ear, hey, when it gets real dark, switch them. It, it, because if that's the case... Wouldn't that make God kind of a, a co-conspirator? I mean, hey, we might say Jacob deserves it. Jacob has it coming. But that doesn't make what Laban did right, does it? No. Well, so if, God is, if God's kind of directing all this, is, is God guilty? Can, can Laban be held liable if God was a part? The answer is no. No, folks, listen. God can use, God can take control of a situation without being liable, without being a co-conspirator. And that's, that's what I want to try to understand today as we answer this question, does it matter how I live? I want to think about it in two ways. And uh, I think I'm going to be mostly rambling today because this is, this is heavy and deep and I can't make sense of my own thoughts. So I'm going to ramble a little bit on God in our life and situations. And when I get done rambling on that, then I'm going to ramble a little bit on us in our life and its situation. So, some thoughts on God in my life and situation. I mean, there's things going on in our lives today, right? You've got, you've got good people and bad people, good situations and bad situations. There's places you're having fun. There's places you're miserable. All this life is going on around you. Hey, what's God's role in that? Okay, well, God tests us. Now, that is actually a statement I'm making kind of opposite of what I just said. See, I, I just said God didn't send Laban to sin. He just let Laban be Laban and used it. He, let, he lets people, situations in our lives run their natural course. And in our life, that's a sinful course. And then he comes in behind it 
and make sure it's used for good in our lives. Well, what I'm saying in this point is God's not coming in behind it. There are actually situations, circumstances that God will manufacture, put together, and put you right in the middle of it, and it may be a very uncomfortable moment. It may be in a place you don't want to be. Why would God do that? Because he's going to test our faith. Now, you remember when we looked, Genesis 22, that's what we looked at with Abraham and Isaac there. And the goal there is not to trip Abraham up. It's not to, to see if, he can, if he'll fail. No, God, when God tests us, his goal is to authenticate our faith. He authenticated Abraham's faith. And what was the result of that? He came out of that with a stronger faith and a bigger view and vision of God. See, no failure there. God will move in our lives, sometimes in uncomfortable ways, to build a stronger, greater faith and a greater view and understanding of who he is. God absolutely does build circumstances. Now, the the next two thoughts are kind of then the other way. Here God God is getting out in front of a situation and leading us to it. In the other one, he's coming behind a situation, and that's when evil is working in our lives. Like Jacob, Laban is working in his lives an evil. No, God did not tempt him. The scripture makes that very clear in James 1.13. God does not tempt people, lead people, set up a situation where we're going to sin. God does not use sin in that way. Proverbs 16.4, Proverbs 16.4 kind of goes with the next point j- just as much. God is in control and he is going to use the evil of what people do, evil people themselves. He's going to use that to accomplish his good purposes He's going to use that to accomplish good in our lives. Genesis 50:20, Romans 8:28. Those are two of my favorite verses. I think you can hang your whole life on those two verses. They're twin sisters, Old Testament and New Testament. They communicate something very similar. Genesis 50:20 is just a few sentences from the end of Genesis. We'll be looking at that verse the Sunday before Thanksgiving, which will be just perfect. Because the Bible commands you and me, 1 Thessalonians 5:18, to give thanks in, not for, but in everything to give thanks. How? Why? Gosh, that seems hard. Genesis 50:20 is going to make it so clear of how and why you and I. Think of the five worst things going on in your life right now. I hope you only get to four. But what are the five worst things? Can you imagine actually understanding how right and good it is for you to give thanks in that moment? Genesis 50, 20 is going to open that up for us. You know what else is going to do? Help us forgive. You know, it's hard to be thankful for anything when people are hurting you, when people are attacking you, when, when you've been betrayed, abused. Man, how do you let that go? How do you forgive? Genesis 50, 20 is going to take us right there. The bottom line is God is in control of every single event, every single moment of your life. Sometimes God is out in front of the moment. That means he created it, brought it all together, and slapped you right in the middle of it. Sometimes he's coming right behind it. And you, either way, he's in control, right? Either way, he's using it in your life. I, I love Deuteronomy 32 Uh, Verse 39, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is none beside me. 
I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none who can deliver out of my hand. And that ought to give you goosebumps. That's one of those verses, I don't know whether to be scared to death or just be excited with praise for how awesome my God is. Probably a little bit of both, right? Now, you know what I want to do? I read a verse like that. I mean, God just said there, I kill. Man, I want to come in right now and clean that up for us so that it doesn't sound like it does. You know, tell you what it really means. And God said, you know, I don't, read, I don't need you to clean me up and make me look good. Go ahead and own what it says. I kill and I make alive. Now, we don't have a problem with this one over here, do we? But the kill, folks, remember, none of God's actions are separated from God's character. God is entirely just, entirely good, and entirely loving. So when he kills, he is doing what is most just, what is most good, and what is most loving. Now, see, you and I can't put that together. That's why you and I don't get to decide when to kill. Because I think it would be just and good and loving here. We will mess that up. But God has that ability. Now, while we need to own the reality God can kill, there's also a little bit of a poetry to what God is saying here. From one extreme to the other. From the killing to the making life. Hey, listen, however far out you go that direction, or however far out you go in that direction, I'm in control I'm in control all the way out there, all the way out there, and every single thing in between. I am in control. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I love this. Who can declare the end from the beginning? From ancient times, I was able to say what's going to happen, even though it hadn't happened yet saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will bank on it. I will accomplish my purpose. You know what, you know what all that's just said? What God just said there is, I've secured the end of the story before you opened up to the first page of the story. Hear, hear God saying that to Leah, unloved, unappreciated, miserable Leah. Leah, I see where you are. I understand this page is covered in being unloved, but I have secured the end for you before you ever got to this page, before your story ever started. You know what's just as interesting? God would say the same thing to Jacob, both the victim and the abuser, both the deceived and the deceiver. God can say to Jacob, I have secured the end of the story before your story ever began. And he would say the same thing to you. Before you were ever born, God secured the end of the... What's the end of the story? Ah, you look just like Jesus. And when you step into heaven, you'll be rewarded and treated as if you had lived the life that Jesus lived. That's the end of the story. But that's not the page we're on right now, is it? Man, maybe you, you open up your story and right now, man, this page is covered in abuse. This page is covered in betrayal. This page is covered in broken promises. Man, this page is covered with my own sin, my own mess. Man, whatever page we're on, hear God say, I have secured the end 
of the story. Maybe you're on a page totally out of control. Everywhere you look, maybe it's in your personal life or you're just trying to understand our world and you look out there and man, bad people are getting away with bad things. Is that a control? God's in control. You want evidence? You want proof? You want to know what you hang your life on that? The cross. Has there ever been a place where things were more out of control than at the cross? Has there ever been a place where bad people were getting away with the worst bad thing possible like never before? And you realize that was all said and done. What did it do? It accomplished every single one of God's purposes. Every single one. So yes, man, God has this big grand scheme. Man, God's doing God's stuff. And it's all going to work out in the end. Man, it's exciting to know God's got the blueprint. God's got this big plan. But maybe we would still wonder, now how, how does, that, does that get down to me? I mean, does he see me? What am I like a, am I a dot in that plan? What am I in that plan? Oh, I, so many verses. I love Psalm 57, verse 2. I cry out to God most high. To God who will fill, fulfill his purpose. For what? His, fulfill his purpose for eternity? Yes. Fulfill his purpose between the the fight between good and evil? Yes. Fulfill his purpose with humanity? Yes. But that doesn't use any of those words. Fulfill his purpose for who? For me. Well, that's very personal, isn't it? God will fulfill his purpose for me. He has my story. Nothing will ever touch your life that can undo, that can stop, that can remove from God's hands his glory, his goodness, and his goodness in your life. Now, I'm not going to take as much on this second point, (laughs) but isn't everything I just said kind of lead to the, well, okay, it sounds like you're still building a case. It doesn't really matter how I live, what I do. Gosh, even if this page is about what a sinner and a mess I'm making, God secured the end of my story. So what difference does it make? That's a good question. Two things real quickly. Number one, you will be disciplined. You will be disciplined. Remember, God can love you. God can forgive you. And God can still say, no, that, that's not going to work. I'm going to have to really... I'm going to have to get serious in my work of uh, buffing and shining and chiseling so that you're looking like Christ. Folks, don't forget, in the God that we love, right? You love him. You, you know, you want to be like him. You want to do what he says. He says, I hate sin. I hate sin. He's not saying he hates you, but boy, he sure hates what sin does in your life. He sure hates how your sin hurts other people. I mean, think of him talking to Jacob. Jacob, I I, I hate the sin that has made you such a deceiver, that's made you not trust me, that's made you not think I've got your story secured. So you have to run around deceiving and tricking people to try to secure your own story. I hate the insecurity and the fear that's giving you, and I hate when you're acting like that, what it's doing to the people around you. He's going to hate sin, because sin is always death. Sin is always darkness. Sin is always the lie. 
When I sin, I'm contributing to its existence in our world. Completely irrelevant how little the sin is and how you're absolutely sure it's not affecting anybody. Every sin pitches into the problem. And God says, I hate what it's doing in your life and everybody around you. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to discipline you. Now, discipline is not punishment. Punishment's one goal is to even the score. You've done wrong. You've got to feel the wrong you've done. And once you have felt it, the score is even and punishment stops. Discipline's different. Discipline wants to do much more than even the score. Discipline wants to result that when you come out of that, you're actually better. You've matured. You've grown. You don't want to go back to that thing. And when God moves and acts, when he's moving and acting here in in Jacob's life, God's told us the reason because he loves Jacob. Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. Love is driving what God does there. So I I, I don't want to have a laissez-faire attitude about God's grace and God's control because when I sin, I'm still doing something that he hates and I'm doing something that that says, hey, God, I'm not getting it. You need to turn up the flame. I mean, literally, that's what you need to hear yourself saying to God in every sin. I'm not getting it. I need more attention. And I don't think that attention will be pleasant. So I would care about how you live. Second reason I think we want to care is because, folks, we're going to be judged. We're we're judged for how we live. We're judged for our right and wrong. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what we've done in the body, good or evil. Each one is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now praise God, praise God, praise God. For a believer, that judgment is not about heaven and hell. If, you, if, we, if we have what we talked about last week, if I've repented, I've turned from trusting myself, trusting in my sin, I've repented. That means I've turned, and now my faith and confidence is not in myself, not in my sin. My faith and confidence is in Jesus entirely, okay? Then I'm not being judged for heaven and hell. The moment that repentance and belief happens, sin, death, and hell are eradicated from my life. They're killed in my life. But now what do I do with my new life in Christ? How do I live? What do I build on that? That's going to be judged. There's a number of passages that talk about it. It, it, Passages that talk about people being in heaven and the judgment goes badly. Hey, this is our rewards. This is what you're going to carry into heaven and use for eternity. Think about how hard you and I will work this week for rewards. There's not a day that goes by that you don't think about the rewards. Let me rephrase that. The rewards of this life. We work. We sweat, we sacrifice to enjoy the rewards of this world. And this, and I'm not saying anything bad about that. Hey, there's good things to enjoy in this world. But every one of them disappears, right? You've never enjoyed anything that you haven't lost. And if you haven't lost yet, enjoy it quick because it will go. That's just the nature of this world. But there are rewards that last forever, Okay, so I'm enjoying the rewards of this world, but wouldn't a thinking and wise person think, hey, maybe, maybe while I'm doing all that, I need to be giving a little time and attention and effort to the rewards of eternity, because that's what lasts forever, or my lack thereof. 
Hey, this life counts. Folks, here's the bottom line. Nowhere in Scripture are you going to see God's control, God's grace leading people to a I don't care attitude. To a ah, it, it all works out in the end attitude. Oh, I'll be forgiven anyway attitude. It never rightly leads anybody to that. What it rightly leads us to do is to be more in awe of God. To more worship God. What, what it rightly does is it leads us to trust him and obey him even when what I'm seeing and experiencing around me seems out of control, bad, evil. Because I know, because God revealed it to me, I know he's working. And I know he has secured the end of my story. So I always have, you always have reason to trust and obey. Let's pray. Wow, Lord, there's a a lot there. This is complex. It's beyond my brain. I'm thankful for that. I'm I'm grateful that the the thoughts on you, the study of you is is beyond our understanding because I think I need a God bigger than what I can grasp. And I thank you, God, for what you have revealed in your word, on one hand, simple, clear, absolutely understandable, but a God who is beyond my grasp, beyond my full ability to comprehend. I thank you, God, that you're bigger than my problems, you're bigger than the evil, you're, you're bigger than my own sin. And God, whether you're leading or coming in behind me, whichever direction it's coming at, you're in control. You're using it for your glory and purposes. You're using it for my good. Oh God, I pray for every one of us that that would build such great faith, such great love, and an even greater commitment to obey. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for all you've done to enable me to hold on to you. And thank you, Lord, for securing the end of the story. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.